0: Hi, hello, happy Monday. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod sponsored by Betfair. It's myself, Ali Maxwell, and my good friend and co-host and co-league, colleague George Ellick, uh, talking about the
1: most important football from the weekend that has just finished. Hello, George, how are you doing? Yeah, I think I've said enough about Gareth Southgate on my uh, Twitter feed, so um, I'm, I'm glad that we can start talking about the stuff that really matters. I mean, I
0: can't believe that they lost, you know, such fine margins. Look, the better side to me, definitely won the tactical battle, but you switch off at one moment, you miss your chances and, and you can lose games. Um, enough about Swansea, yes. Neil Norwich won. <laughs> I was wondering which game you were going to say. <laughs> you know me too well. Um, let's be honest up front here. One of the most forgetful weekends in EFL history, surely. Um Matches called off due to ice and snow and whatnot. Uh, quite a lot of the matches that did go ahead probably would have been better had they been called off. Such was the lack of quality. I think almost a quarter of the games that were played were nil-nil. So uh, all in the shadow of, of the World Cup quarterfinals and England's sad demise. There,
1: there was a... Um, I'm never going to listen to this. And I, I can't really believe I'm saying it now. But there was a... Um, I was on Five Live on Saturday doing a... Kind of pre three o'clock roundup of of the stories, kind of the stories I guess that had happened over the last couple of weeks as well, mainly manager stuff. On with um with the wonderful Kelly Cates, and Kelly was presenting live from um, Netherlands Argentina from from the stadium. Oh no, it would have been Morocco Morocco Portugal on Saturday, and it meant that it was very loud in my ears when I was because obviously I could hear you know what everyone else could hear, but I had to talk over it. And I made the mistake of of trying to make a gag in um, the opening gambit where I, s- I said to Kelly, I was like, you know, I've been on the streets of, of London this morning and there's palpable excitement and I can only imagine it's because the championship is back. And, unbe- and unbeknown to me, Kelly just couldn't hear anything I was saying because of the... Um, <laughs> Because of the, the the noise and, you know, being the consummate pro she is, I have no doubt that even if she didn't find my gag funny, she would have done a fake laugh if she'd heard it. But what instead, there was just a really awkward, like, six or seven seconds of, of silence whilst I think Kelly was trying to work out if I'd stop speaking or not before she just asked me about Neil Critchley. So that was a, um, yeah, uh, in what was a not particularly... Uh, funny or fun uh, weekend of EFL football. Um, it started off with a, an, an embarrassing moment for me. You've you've had
0: your Charlie Nicholas moment, nice and early mm. in your career, and 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 on a weekend where it would have been easily buried, easily forgotten. So um, unfortunately, uh, due to the fact that I I will be able to listen back and find that on BBC Sounds, I will be doing that as soon as the pod finishes, <laughs> uh, seeing if we can get you uh, seeing if we can get you viral. Uh, there there is there is plenty to talk about. We've got three lots of manager news. And Lord knows we love sifting through manager news. And we got some interesting results from the weekend and uh, some news about independent regulators and a few other bits and bobs. As always, just a lot of love for these leagues and always nice to be talking about them together. So uh, join us as we do so. I also went to two games in the EFL this weekend, so I'm looking forward to telling you about those. Um, Makes a change. My heart... What? <laughs> I don't know, just that, have a go. Okay, you don't even wear your glasses straight <laughs> home the other night, <laughs> in case you get slagged off. Um, before we get into the football, a quick shout out. My favourite moment from the whole weekend um, came in Red Spa in, in Crawley. It was my first time to Broadfield Stadium. I, I liked it. It was not even half full. I think 1,900 there. But I could see it being quite a good stadium to go to if and when it ever is full. Um, sub-zero temperatures probably didn't help. What I was impressed with is the uh, Reds bar, which I thought was a pretty good setup. Lots of screens showing the, uh, the all-time World Cup quarterfinal that I missed to go and watch 18th <laughs> against 24th in League Two. Um, and there I was um, watching the game and I met uh, Espen and Alex, who came over and said hi. Espen, oh, they're from Norway. Uh, Espen is a true NTT 20 Ultra. He's been listening for years. Uh, He supports Blackburn Rovers. And not like, oh, I support a Norwegian team and I I just follow Blackburn. Like, they are his first team. And he comes over a couple of times a year to watch them. Uh, He also picks a different team in League 1 and another team in League 2 each season to follow, just to kind of keep the interest there, learn about new teams. So he's basically my footballing soulmate. Um, And actually, that's probably a bit of a dig at you. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, he came over and said hi, had a great chat with them. They were over on an EFL Bonanza weekend, watching Crawley Hartlepool, watching Blackburn-Preston, and then I think they might have tried to get to Stoke from Blackburn for the second half of the Stoke-Cardiff game. Um, Sensational stuff, such nice guys, and and it was lovely to be reminded of how many people love these crazy leagues, uh, and equally, always nice to, to meet people who listen to this crazy pod as well. So, yeah, on a night where I was questioning my life choices missing uh, netherlands to argentina too, to to <laughs> to watch crawley hartley pool in minus temperatures uh those guys were kind of sent i think from from footballing heaven to remind me how class these leagues are so uh i said that i would pass on this message george as i said goodbye to espen and alex alex leant in and said tell george that norway says hi hello
1: norway i feel like i'm uh, wow i'm like a eurovision judge <laughs> hello norway hello norway 12 points
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear right football time uh i'm feeling a bit wounded a bit down after the weekend so i want to start with bad cop let's let it all out george in the championship what was
1: bad i mean i think you, you stole the obvious bad cop, bad cop away from me uh, which we'll get onto to in just a second um but i think my bad cop is going to go to uh, Rotherham, who I feel like have been bad cop a few times in in recent times, uh, and it's not necessarily strictly due to the um, due to the performance against Bristol City in the game that they lost 3-1. Um, you know, It was a game where I don't think there was a great deal between the two sides. Bristol City came into the game not in great form either, um, but in terms of, of what we saw from Rotherham and what we've seen over the last few weeks, they've gone from being a mid-table size when Paul Warren left um, to now under Matt Taylor, a side who are now second favourites with uh, Betfair for, and, and are odds on for relegation from the Championship. And that is down to a, a run of games where, bizarrely, if you take out the uh, 1-0 win over Sheffield United back in uh, on that Tuesday night in early November, uh, it is now two points from the other uh, s- seven games? Yes, yeah, seven games in that time. Um, and it feels to me like, It was a very difficult role for Taylor to take. I made the point when Liam Richardson was um, sacked as Wigan manager that it it feels, if you're a manager, taking over a side who have one of the bottom six budgets in the Championship is probably one of the worst jobs you can possibly take, where um, succeeding to keep a, a side afloat is a massive success, but it's also... The bare minimum of what the the fan base uh, expects. Part of that is because the discrepancy in budgets between the bottom end and the top end of the championship is massive, uh, and part of it is is because that you know there's there's quite a clear gap in quality between those teams. And Taylor has the added issue not only of taking on a, a job from Warren, who had made such a good start to the season, but the fact that they are probably the club with the the smallest or the second smallest budget in the division. But the fact he took over them after such a good start and with Warner saying, you know, I've left them in such a good place, means that he is not even afforded the, um, you know, the the right to, to to take over at a time where they are on level points with everybody else. It, it probably feels like this bad run was, was maybe coming. Um, in terms of the game itself on Saturday, they created a fair amount of chances, but it was Bristol City who put theirs away. I think the XG was kind of 1.5 apiece. Um, but at this current moment and... You know, I said as much. I'm pretty sure. You know, before at the beginning of this run, I said that I thought they were in big trouble of getting relegated, um, because their away form was so poor. But what we've now seen is maybe, uh, unsurprisingly, is, is the home form has started to to slide as well. Although. You know, bizarrely, I think they had um, yeah, they had five of, of six games were away from home in the league consecutively. But they've lost their last um, three games at home to Hull, to Norwich, and to Bristol City. They've conceded nine goals in those three games as well. And and if that is going to be the way this goes going forwards, um, then it, it's hard to see how they're they're not going to be uh, very much up against it in terms of trying to stay up. Mm.
0: Very pleasing afternoon that for Bristol City, uh, after five without a win before the break. uh, Clearly targeting and exploiting Rotherham's right side of their defence. And I think we can expect their next few opponents to watch that and do exactly the same, to basically put pressure on Norton Cuffey and Peltier down that side, um, who, who... Really struggled to contain first uh, a run in behind from Wells, which led to the OG and then Conway making the exact same run, uh, running it onto the ball into the channel, crossing from the left uh, for Williams's goal Uh, and a set piece goal as well. Bristol City, I don't have the numbers to hand, but in my head they are... a massive net negative set piece team so for them to score one not concede one even that is is significant is positive something that they need to to build on um Rotherham not going to get too far if they continue to be that loose defensively at uh, the good cop you kind of half alluded to it sounded like you might have had bad cop Blackburn Rovers but let's talk positively about Preston North End the victors uh, at Ewood Park 4-1 winners here Preston Good cops smashing Blackburn Rovers and punching their way into the top six while doing so. Uh, and that's with missing at least five first teamers. Um, I loved Ryan Lowe's quotes before and after the game where rather than moaning about absences, rather than using it to make him and his team look better, having one for one he he just wanted to hammer home the importance of the squad, uh, basically saying he's not worried about those missing because he believes in each player equally. And it's easy to, to kind of roll your eyes at that sort of stuff. It's difficult to imagine that, you know, if we could get inside Ryan Lowe's head or if we could give him some sort of truth serum, he would admit that he had equal beliefs you know 22nd squad member versus one of his starting 11 but you can imagine that what he says to them on that front breathes confidence into the group uh, and we we saw it on the pitch Ryan Lowe Ryan Ledson set the tone of course he did, um, with a crunching tackle in the first minute. It's actually injured Callum Britton in doing so, albeit it was not a foul. Uh, just a very, very strong challenge. And, I mean, we we exchanged messages straight away, George, because a former Oxford player, you know Ledson very well, he's become pretty well-known in EFL circles for these sorts of tackles at the start of derby games. And it's a fine line between... Tone-setting, meaty tackle and first-minute red card. But he's on the right side of it this time. Um, And that was kind of it from that point. You know, North End looked like they knew exactly what to do when Blackburn had the ball to set traps and win the ball back. And then exactly what to do with it when they won it. I think that speaks really well to Lowe's game plan and the way that it was executed. You know, of course, Rovers completely played into their hands and and Chris Wilder on Sky with some good analysis on that front uh, at half-time. But... Just really great day for the for the Preston fans. Woodburn slotting home, his first championship goal. Uh, Evans at the double, another high turnover led to, to the second goal, and then a thumping header after a great bit of play, desire and, and and quality from Alvaro Fernandez. And then the 4-1 goal was just icing applied to Cake, wasn't it? Ben Whiteman um, smashing in, thanks to a deflection, a goal that featured a, a naughty DJ back heel to set it up. It was it was highly confident, both out of possession and composed and confident with it, uh, attacking with real thrust. So I was very, very impressed. Uh, It finished off a great week for Preston as they tied down key players, Liam Lindsay and Ryan Ledson to long-term contracts. You know, This is a club who have lost so many players in the last few years due to them not being locked down contract-wise, which is is kind of the nature of the beast when you're in their position in the food chain. Um, But they're in a good moment right now. Uh, 50 games up for Ryan Lowe and Georgia, a man that we were demanding got a championship job this time last year, got a championship job, 50 games in. To me, seems established, popular and doing a very good
1: job, has them in sixth place. And and with Preston, because it's kind of similar to what I was saying a second ago about, about Matt Taylor and Rotherham, because predecessors at Preston have done pretty well in establishing them as a mid-table championship club, despite not having the resources to really necessarily warrant it. Uh, it's a difficult job to take on. I think it can often get forgotten that Preston managers doing what they're doing and doing what Ryan Lowe is doing is is kind of punching above their weight. Um, I was so impressed with them. As you say, it was incredible how often they were able to create goalscoring opportunities from either kind of interceptions in the the middle of the park, tackles in the final third, and quickly recycling it and getting the ball forward. And that was um, impressive. You know, Ched Evans has has gone through a a big lean spell in terms of his goal scoring. That is over. And he is providing the the goals at the moment. And that focal point up front, which has changed their, their efficiency going forward. So, yeah, lots to like caveated by the fact that, you know, we've said it all season, Blackburn Rovers, despite their lofty positions this day has been coming where a side would show up, take their chances and put a few past them because there have been plenty of occasions this season where similar games have followed a similar trend and Rovers actually got something out of the game with with, with, with the opposition being pretty wasteful in front of goal.
0: Mm. There still seems to be this, to my eyes, awkward relationship between the team that Jon Dale-Thomason seemingly wants them to be and maybe it's not him. I, it, it did occur to me that this... This desire to play right from the back and to, to play through the thirds in a very kind of Swansea kind of way, uh, it could be part of a, of a wider plan from the club to instil a, 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 a club-wide philosophy which they can then recruit to. It could be something that they, they've decided to do with the new sporting director, director of football, can't remember Greg Broughton's exact title, but came in in the summer. It's been a, a period of change, certainly a, a, a move to a more modern decision-making approach. And so you wouldn't be surprised if something like this is, is forming part of their their sort of club-wide conversations. But it could be that it's the football Thomason desperately wants to play. Whatever the the reality is, it's really awkward at the moment that they're, they're not good enough at building from the back. Um, they're, they're not creating the amount of good opportunities, good shots, goals to justify doing what they're doing. You know, that's the trade-off we're building from the back in theory. And by the numbers, if you can do it well, and if you have the right players to do so, you can attack into more space because you've sucked the opposition onto you and more space and fewer defenders between you and the goal generally leads to higher quality opportunities. That's kind of a given at this point. But the trade-off is massive. It's not a low-risk approach. It is quite the opposite of that. And um, well, certainly in their last two games against Burnley and now against Preston, they have they have risked a lot with very little reward. And it's it's pretty tough to watch, to be honest. You kind of you know, you watch it between your fingers, just wincing um, Travis and Wharton in particular with, with errors on the ball. So uh, not great for them. Uh, for Preston, just to reiter- reiterate what I said a few weeks ago, the worst thing the fans can do now is get fixed on the league position. I have mentioned them being in the playoffs, um, but but to measure everything from that point would be wrong and will probably only lead to tears. No doubt they're in good shape, though. Um, two points back from from Blackburn now. Uh, QPR nil Burnley 3, George, our, our table toppers... March on. Uh, it always seems like a, a different star who, who contributes to Burnley wins. This time, Goodmanson, you know, popping out the woodwork to score a, a beautiful early free kick, a contentious early free kick.
1: It's so nice that Goodmanson gets a chance because Anas is warming the bench in the, in the, in the World Cup semi final. Um, uh, yeah, two. And Burnley, f- are
0: getting, and Burnley are getting paid for that.
1: I know. And the and QPR <laughs> with Ilyas Chair as well, you know, two star attacking players for each side missing. As they contribute zero minutes to one of the most incredible World Cup stories of our of our lifetime, um, yeah, who wouldn't love the EFL? But um, yeah, it was. I mean, Burnley were were dominant in this win. Let's let's not mistake that. And this was the one game in in what has turned out to be a one game caretaker spell from Paul Hall. Um, there was clearly. The most contentious penalty decision in world football this weekend was um, the uh, George Thomas foul after 15 seconds, where Muric quite clearly brings him down in the area. Thomas recalled from the wilderness, um, I think for his second start this season, by Hall, and should have had an instant impact. And you know, QPR should have had a penalty after 15 seconds. There was absolutely no denying that. But from what I saw in terms of the 90 minutes, I'm not sure it would have made much of a difference because um, Burnley was seemingly reinvigorated um after the break i think when we th- when we think back to uh their performance on opening day against Huddersfield it was kind of similar in terms of the intensity the willingness to go forward i was kind of concerned that vince and company had chosen to go and um you know be a, a pundit uh in qatar over the course rather than necessarily you know work either going i think most clubs either went on a a warm weather training training camp or continued to work at home um he did not but it didn't really seem to make much of a of a difference. They were incredibly well-drilled. They were able to move the ball so well. Um, I thought Jack Cork had, had his best game that I've seen so far uh, for Burnley this season, where it's normally Cullen who kind of sits and, and dictates play, but Cullen kind of adopted a role. I think probably because it was Goodmanson rather than... Um, rather than zururi, We saw Cullen kind of pop up on the right-hand side a lot more often for that kind of quick inter- interchange rather than having uh, kind of raw pace and um, and ball, dribblet- ball carrying ability. And on that side, which meant that Cork was the one sitting and dictating. Um, and they were 2 up at half-time, a brilliant free kick from Goodmanson with the opener, a, a, a really good finish from Matson for the second as well that I think would be underrated by by many. I mean, it was a, a difficult skill even though it was a, a basically an open net to, to finish into. And then the second half, not a great deal happened. Um, apart from a decent Nathan Teller goal to to land the spoils for you in your in your betfair column. So, um, yeah, a dominant performance, definitely a drop off. I, I know that QPR were bottom of the form table going into this game. It was a bit of a false position. It was a bit of a you know a, a, a reversion to the mean after a decent spell. Um, but they they offered precious little here. But understandably, their, their fans will feel frustrated the referee didn't at least uh, give them an opportunity to, to go one all up in the first minute.
0: Well, let's say that QPR looked a little bit between two managers. It turned out that's exactly what they were, George, because
1: now they're not. They've scratched <laughs> that critch.
0: They've scratched that critch Neil Critchley in at QPR Talk about a managerial merry-go-round Here's a tweet from Andy Warren Not the only person to note this But probably laid it out the best uh, Who wrote Gerard and Beal leave Rangers for Aston Villa Beal leaves Aston Villa for QPR Critchley leaves Blackpool to replace Beal at Villa Beal leaves QPR for Rangers Critchley replaces Beal at QPR So, Stephen Gerrard, the next Blackpool manager I think we're all excited about that. Uh, what are your thoughts on QPR choosing Neil Critchley to be the man to replace Mick Beale?
1: Yeah, I, I kind of, as a throwaway comment, last Monday I said I thought it would be um, Critchley falling on his feet, uh, which Hugh Davis, at arbitro to the Thursday listeners, um, kind of messaged me on our Telegram, a leveler group, and said, um, you know, what did you mean? And it, it's one of those things I, I kind of said without thinking too much about it, like pretty much everything I say on this podcast. And, um, I guess what I meant was more that he had been strongly linked to the Wigan job. Um, He's been strongly linked to the Luton job. And in my mind, it was probably that kind of profile of club that seemed to fit my idea of where he would end up next. Not because he doesn't deserve this job off the back of the the, the QPR. Sorry, off the back of the the job he did at Blackpool. But I don't know, just because I I didn't necessarily see... um, a you know a, a team with with aspirations to to get into the Premier League taking a chance on Critchley now obviously it doesn't seem as big a, a chance taken as QPR with with Mick Beale who hadn't had a, a full time management job before um, clearly the body of work that Neil Critchley did at Blackpool was incredibly impressive and I think there are probably similarities in terms of the profile of club as Blackpool in league one as QPR in in the championship not a club that would be seen as being one of the the biggest budgets in the league not a club seen as one of the biggest clubs necessarily in the league but certainly a club with aspirations to get out of that league and and that kind of tracks across and he also did a great job in his first season of management in, um, in the championship as well at Blackpool so it's exciting for that reason stylistically it's a bit confused I would say Um, I don't think you can read too much into this but is it worth noting that from what we know Mick Beale was pretty much in charge of tactics and training um, at Aston Villa under Stephen Gerrard Um, he was replaced by Neil Critchley who as far as we know was given a similar role and the players very much struggled in the, in terms of the transition of of playing styles. This is now a club who've been taken charge of by Mick Beale, who are now going to be taken charge of by Neil Critchley. Can we expect a, a similar difficulty in terms of the transition? Maybe. Uh, beale has been given a lot of credit for the style of play that he implemented being attacking and um, easy on the eye. I would say that Critchley is a manager who is a pragmatist, first and foremost, who's efficiency was the most impressive thing. You know, teams really struggled to break them down. They didn't create loads of chances, but when they did, they took them. Um, so in terms of that, if, long-term, I think it's a good appointment is what I'm saying. You know, if if he's there in two, two and a half seasons, I'm sure he'd have done a great job um, and they will build in his image. Short-term, I don't necessarily think that Critchley is the manager to come in and reroute their Premier League uh, bids. Um, but that's not a criticism. That's just uh, stylistically, it feels like a, a little bit of a clunky fit. Mm.
0: Yeah. In my head, there is there is a scenario where he makes them more pragmatic and that improves their chances of winning promotion. Uh, I think QPR have had a very large gap between their best performances and their worst performances this season under Mick Beale, And I'm pretty confident that Critchley will certainly raise their floor you know, the thing that stands out most about that Blackpool team was that I they almost never put in a shocker of a performance. They were incredibly consistent. They were, as you've alluded to, defined by discipline and shape out of possession, by their work ethic. And then in attack, by finding a way to hurt teams in, in what I would consider to be quite a mixed attacking style. So uh, by that, I mean they could attack fairly direct and, and Gary Medin helped them to do that uh, In the in the League One playoffs they played quite direct because they had Ellis Sims and Jerry Yates and they were two strikers in brilliant form and it made sense to get the ball to them as quickly as possible. There were Spells where Keshi Anderson was a standout attacking player for them, more of a technical type creator on the ball in the final third. Where Josh Bowler, who was a talented young player that had basically done nothing in senior football until Neil Critchley got his hands on him uh, and gave him the confidence and the platform to express himself as you know one of the sort of dribbly technical attacking players in the league. So I I, I think it's difficult to say exactly what they're going to look like because it's a different profile of squad to what he had at. Blackpool. So it, it it stands to reason in my mind that they wouldn't just be pragmatic, that there's a chance they could be improved out of possession and still retain a bit of sort of creativity and, and a bit of excitement going forward with players like Willock and Chair. I don't really think there's any other way to be. So Look, I'm I'm pretty positive about this. There's no secret from listeners of the pod that I was a huge admirer of what he did at Blackpool, um, both in League One in their promotion, but then even in the Championship last season. It doesn't leap off the page, maybe, for followers of the EFL, but I would consider Blackpool finishing 16th with 60 points in their first season up. A huge success um, and 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 therefore I have no reason uh, at this point and no evidence to suggest that Critchley is anything other than a, a very, very good manager and a good coach at this level. Now, he's not as slick as Beale in the media and I, I do kind of agree with you that very specifically the transition from Beale to Critchley is, is probably the biggest sticking point. I think that's the most interesting thing here that I'm a little unsure about but yeah if, if he can be left to get his grip on things and as long as he doesn't leave them for a shiny new job sometime soon um, then then I think they should continue to challenge for the playoffs I, I, I'm i hopeful there won't be short term pain shall we say I think he's a good enough tactician to, to get them performing to a top half level at the very least pretty much straight away it's interesting isn't it by the way that you've brought up a couple of times that with managers like Beale leaving early with managers like Critchley leaving Blackpool in a way that their fans didn't like for a job that they were confused that he had taken. You know, you talked about how potentially future hiring clubs might think twice about hiring these guys. But QPR, certainly not twice bitten, once shy. They've been left in the lurch mm. by Beale, and they've just gone straight for a guy who left his last job in,
1: in quite lively circumstances. I, th- I think it's quite handy for QPR that Stephen um, Steven Gerrard probably won't get a job uh, on pff, much above QPR's level. So I don't think Neil Critchley's going to get offered a shiny assistant manager job at a Premier League club again anytime soon. Although I am a bit terrified that if the current England manager leaves, then Gerrard might be quite near the top of the list for that. So maybe Critch mm-hmm. will end up being on the England bench. But he could probably do both jobs anyway. So
0: the, the last thing to say is, you know, we've focused here on the last two years of Neil Critchley's career. But before he took charge of Blackpool, this is a guy who... Was classically in the mould of uh, excellent youth developer, proper coach, um, improving young players, working with some of the most talented players in English football. Up at Liverpool, you know, his back, his his early career was spent at Crew, which is kind of the academy for academy coaches in a way. So again, understanding where QPR are at and the way that their football operations team think, uh, which is. Heavily skewed towards development as much as they are, you know, trying to get promoted. I I don't think that for them is uh, it's not all about the short term. Uh, Again, you can understand why Critchley's resume outside of just Blackpool would have ticked a few boxes for them. Um, So Corboran, Critchley and Rob Edwards, three of the best performing managers from last season in the EFL. They were all unemployed seven weeks ago and now they're all in jobs in the championship and good jobs too, you'd say, Corbran West Brom, Critchley QPR, and Rob Edwards at Luton. Uh, some other games took place, George, none of them hugely exciting. Uh, Sheffield United won, Huddersfield nil. We saw a bit of uh, World Cup stardust, sprinkled by and Jai.
1: Yeah, a pretty run of the mill um, home win for for Blades, as you say, a really good assist from Njai, a, a lovely dinked finish from, from Billy Sharp. Um, I... I'm starting to be a bit concerned for Huddersfield. I, I do think that their performances over the last five or six games after that initial injection of energy from Mark Fotheringham seems to be waning. Um, defensively especially, they are conceding loads of chances and loads of good chances in pretty much every game. Um, you know, they are still the favourites to get relegated out of the Championship. But... No, I'm not really a believer in the new manager bounce, but having said that, I did feel like Fotheringham immediately came in and changed something. You know, He dropped certain players. He demanded a bit more. Um, keeping that intensity up was always going to be difficult and it does kind of strike me that maybe it's starting to, to wane a little bit. Um, but yeah, Blades, very professional in terms of what they did. They were pretty much untroubled in the game and, and ran out fairly cosy winners. Billy Sharp has now scored in
0: 19 seasons. Consecutively, (laughs) as a striker, really nailed that line, didn't I? Yeah, he scored his first goal in 2004 2005 and is still scoring in 22 23. Absolutely magnificent. Um, Can you tell me about Swansea nil Norwich one, please? This was uh, won by an early Temu Puki goal at the back post after a, a set piece was flicked on at the near.
1: Yeah, it was it was a really weird game where the first minute was probably one of the worst minutes of, of football you're ever going to see from a team in Swansea. Um, they managed to concede a, a really good chance. Um, within 20 seconds, uh, Norwich won a corner from that. And the corner was basically put in across the six-yard box, landed in the six-yard box, and then got to Tami Puki prodded home at the back post. So uh, bad and open play from kick-off and then conceding a ridiculously avoidable goal to go one 0 down. Um, as you expect, when kind of Dean Smith alluded to this, you know, l- leading a game for for ninety minutes isn't a particularly easy thing to do, uh, especially when you've got a team like Swansea who you know are going to be so good between both boxes, and they were very good between both boxes. And Russell Martin said that he thought they were very very good between both boxes. But then Russell Martin also said, you know, a, a Norwich hero, and he had a bit of a smirk on his face when he said it. You know, he said he felt that. Norwich were very lucky to go home with all three points. Now, despite the fact that Swansea outshot, outpassed, out everythinged Norwich. I'm not entirely sure that's true. They were better between both boxes, but crucially they were unbelievably bad and inside their own box in the first minute. And then they created very little in terms of clear-cut chances themselves. So um fortune I don't think it really comes into it. The um the highest XG chance that I saw listed for Swansea. Was a Jay Fulton chance where I'm pretty sure he doesn't even get a shot off because um, because yeah. the keeper has got, got the ball in his hands when he does it. So okay. um, the gun sorry. did
0: well to sort of jump on it. But yeah, gun. I noticed exactly. that as well. They gave that sort of 0.75 SG, yeah. but it and wasn't really wasn't a shot. A shot no, yeah.
1: but no, it was it was a uh, not a particularly comfortable afternoon for for Norwich, but um, they saw it out fairly well.
0: Hey, I said there wasn't much more excitement, but I'd say Middlesbrough two, Luton yeah, one. I was gonna say. With an injury time winner from Matt Crooks for the second game in a row. He scored the winner against Norwich just before the World Cup break and the winner against Luton after it. This is Crooks coming off the bench as well. you know someone that we've seen thriving for Middlesbrough as a starter, as a key player over the last few years, but Michael Carrick's got him in a in a bench role at the moment, as a as a finisher, as the modern manager would probably call him, and it's working pretty well. I I, I I wanted to try and work out what I think Michael Carrick is doing so well uh, in his initial month or two in, in charge of Middlesbrough because they've won 4 of their last 5 that they're, they're you know we've blinked and they're suddenly in the top half after that horrible start to the season. The game they lost was one of his first ones against Preston which was just a pure nothing game with all three goals from set pieces and and they lost the set piece goal battle 2-1. Um and yeah, I mean you can look at footballing on pitch stuff like moving away from from the back three popularized by Chris Wilder which worked really well last season wasn't working so well this season it means Isaiah Jones uh, has has been given basically a pure attacking role so he's got Tommy Smith behind him as a right back a a very conservative fullback in this system and it's just all about down the right side trying to get Jones 1v1 to, to, to do what he does best on the left it's a bit it's a bit different so they've got this kind of different approach on each flank which I think is normally a hallmark of a, of a pretty good team rather than just doing the same thing on both sides uh, Giles is the left back of course he's basically the most attacking fullback in the division uh, it means that because he can cover most of that flank in attack and, and he's the one that you want delivering the crosses as he did for Akpom's goal the, the sort of nominal left sider in the four four two, in this case, it was Riley McGree can kind of tuck inside and be a, an auxiliary central attacking midfielder type and and kind of combine all over. That's worked really well. And, and McGree comes back from the World Cup in great confidence. We both felt bad that we didn't mention him last week <laughs> uh, when talking about World Cup EFL stars. Uh, and then Hayden Hackney is obviously the the one that we focused on uh, on the last pod that we, we, where we spoke about Borough coming in um, in the interim manager's reign uh, Leo Perkovic uh, slotting in next to Johnny Housen and looks a bit like Johnny Housen's son has basically started playing next to Johnny Housen and is a kind of Johnny Housen uh, prototype but a bit taller and a lot younger Uh, he's slotted in really really well and then of course Akpom you know he was already in goal scoring form before Carrick arrived but I kind of thought that it was just a bit he was getting he'd got a little bit lucky with quite a few six yard box scrambled goals but now I don't think that at all. Um, some <laughs> of the stuff that he's done in the last few weeks, particularly outside the box, you know, here he basically played a kind of ten slash nine role with force up top, um, and he looks brilliant and he scored a great header, and it's just strikers, eh? What what a turnaround for Akpom! But for me, uh, and I don't know, I don't know what you think about this. That the thing that stands out most probably isn't to do with tactics or game plan. It just seems like his personality has. Just calmed everything down and 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 brought out a real sort of Michael Carrick sort of composure and a confidence and a calmness, which which seems to be working very well at the moment and and quite particularly in contrast to what was happening in the first twelve games of the season.
1: Yeah, I think two things can be true here. Um, I think Michael Carrick's doing a great job, and I think the the, the tactical quirks he mentioned there, especially um playing Jones higher. When I looked at kind of positional maps, I kind of expected to see that Smith was playing a bit of a hybrid role as being a, a right back and a right side of center back when when Giles went forward, but that isn't really true. He's playing really high and I think that's meaning that you effectively cannot double up on Jones and if you do then you're going to leave the the other flank exposed, which is working because Giles the creator um as it was, and, and, and Jones and other games. So he is certainly implementing changes, um, and that is credit to him. And it does feel like something kind of special is happening under Carrick in early days at, at Borough. But also it was a an unbelievable job to come into. And I think this is the same for Corbrown and West Brom, where you are taking over a team who have the squad to justify being one of the pre-season favourites for promotion, which they were, um, who are posting really good underlying numbers, which regardless of what Borough fans saw with their eyes I'm not saying it means they were good but there is weight in that it means they weren't f- far away from getting it right when Chris Wilder was there in a lonely league position it's kind of the equivalent of going to Vegas watching someone put loads of money into a fruit machine walk away and then you come on put your quarter in and then, and then you, you hit the jackpot That is it's kind of what has happened with both of them, where you you come in where the processes are already there. The expectations are low because of what's already happened. You can't do any worse than what's come before you. The numbers are already good. All you have to do is improve it a little bit and variance is going to be on your side anyway. And that is what's happened. So I'm not taking anything away from him because I think what he's done is great. And I think what Corbrand has done at Baggies is good as well. But it's no massive surprise to me that right now the numbers haven't changed markedly in terms of the XG stuff. But they are two of the informed teams in the division, and um, the feel-good factor is certainly back. And, and it, I guess that that justifies making the change of manager, even if things maybe weren't quite as bad as they looked.
0: It's interesting. So, like, would you say that judging a manager's games, you know, il- games eleven to twenty would be more valuable than than judging their games one to ten?
1: Not, not always. I, I think with because um, by that
0: in, in, to to that logic by that time things might have sort of gone you know settled a little bit. Shall we say?
1: I, I think I think whenever you're coming in after like a a run which doesn't align with with kind of the the number side of things maybe. But I also think it's sometimes and this is especially the case with caretaker managers who end up getting the full-time job you know if you take mark hudson at cardiff for example i'd say this is very different where hudson at cardiff you can see very clearly the changes that he has made you know that the the mindset and the way that his cardiff team is set up compared to steve morrison is is very visibly different you know they are the amount of attacking freedom he is giving his team is is in a completely different ballpark to what morrison was giving them and therefore the change in results can be explained very often though You won't see much of a change. And I think with Carrick, you can as well. You know, with Carrick, there are, we've mentioned them here, there are clear ways that you can see what he is doing. It's having a positive impact. The the stumbling block comes when you make a change, the results improve, you can't really put your finger on what's happened, but, you know, there's a new man at the helm, so hey ho, let's give him a two year contract. That is when I think teams get unstuck, when it turns out actually, you would just do a good run, and um, and and that lucky person was, was in charge at the time. Um, but I'm not saying for a second that's the case with Carrick. But I do think that for both West Brom and for Middlesbrough, you're coming into a job where where the foundations are very much already set up for you to to succeed. Even if the noise from the fans is we're rubbish, we're terrible, we need to improve. There's a balance there.
0: It certainly wasn't the scenario that Rob Edwards arrived into at Luton. This was his first game in charge. Uh, Not too many surprises in terms of general shape and, and personnel. We discussed that in length last week. They're still very light at the back due to injuries, so Amari Bell playing left centre-back sent off for two bookings, one of them particularly a bit dim and, and pretty unhelpful at 1-1. Uh, Doughty played left wing back there and, and Crooks getting the winner from a uh, sort of uh, bobbly uh, what would you say, a bit of a scramble following a, a set piece which wasn't cleared. But Jordan Clark's goal for Luton was a real highlight and, and maybe one of my favourite of the season after, after the second and third viewing. It sort of gets a bit better each time, I reckon. You, you don't... You don't see many goals like this. I know that's one of your preferred criteria for, <laughs> for good goals. Like a centre midfielder just setting off dribbling through the middle because he hasn't got much on. Like the the audacity to nutmeg Johnny Housen. It wasn't the cleanest Megs, but he did get it on the other Definitely side. So still counts. And then just moving with such, with such sort of balance and agility, Clark, he's got that low centre of gravity, obviously a former winger. And then just pinging off a strike with your weaker left foot Hard, low, accurate into the corner. Um, excellent, excellent goal. And I'd probably bring it up four times a, a season, but I don't think I'll ever get over the fact that Jordan Clark was this solid, consistent League One, League Two winger for Accrington. He'd played a bit at Shrewsbury, got released by Shrewsbury, went to Aki, became their star man for sure, but in a you know a team that was at best a bottom half League One team. And he was a kind of a right-footed winger that played on the right side and just put crosses in, basically got to the byline, put crosses in and worked hard out of possession. And now he's this dynamic central midfielder in the top half of the championship, capable of, as far as I can see, playing every midfield role from six to eight to 10, Good out of possession because his work rate is unbelievable and has moments of quality like this in possession as well. And I just love player development like that. I think it's so fun. I think it. I think it reflects so well on the players themselves to be able to, you know, have the open mindedness to adapt their game and to thrive in new areas of the pitch at a, at the level above. But also, it's impressive management from in this instance Nathan Jones, who. You know, so many managers, I think, just look at their squad in quite binary terms. Like we have the- these players that play in these positions. And if I feel we're light in this area, I need to buy a player. Well, if you can develop, if you can change a player's position and get plenty out of them, then that's obviously one of the best things that a manager can do. At Reading 1, Coventry nil. George, these two teams started the weekend level on points and in very different form, but the form book was thrown out the window by the World Cup and now there's three points between them and six teams between them, such as the seeded batch in the Championship. Reading winning, uh, not a classic, I think. Coventry hitting the
1: post from a set piece and Reading scoring from theirs. But a new name for us, at least. That was my analysis. I was just going to say two set pieces, one of them hit the post, Coventry at 0-0, and then one of the men in a goal, and uh, and that's kind of the, the story of this in a game of, of very very few uh, chances or goals. And uh, Ben with a with a goal for for um, Reading. You know, it was kind of a weird one. where It was a second header from a set piece that kissed the other side of the bar and went in. Um, Reading didn't have a shot after that. You know, in the, in the way that they often do, they are a team who, when they go ahead, um, it's hard to wrestle um the the game back off them because they do sit into their shape and and, and you can struggle to break them down um it was a game uh, pretty low on quality but uh yeah given Reading's poor form come up against a side in in Coventry who've been much in much better form um and you know i, I don't know if the off pitch uncertainty um has any bearing on on Coventry you would think maybe if anything it would have a a positive one given um you know the issues and the way that can galvanize Teams, um, but fingers crossed that's that's all sorted soon. Um, but yeah, a, a big three points for Reading just to to keep the breathing space between them. We've seen with Rotherham how quickly things can unravel from that position. So um, yeah, a, a big they're going to need to keep winning their home games to make sure that doesn't happen to them.
0: Mm. Uh, and Mbenge is is only twenty; he's so a young centre back, only joined in September. So after the season had started, and only on a short term contract, I think uh, until January. So uh, they're going to want to tie him down, I think. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how that signing came about, whether it was some incredible piece of scouting to to pick up a player released by Mets in France or possibly more likely a a sort of an agent job. But either way, signing a 20 year old on a short term contract and him having played seven games already and scored the winning goal seems like a pretty good outcome. So hopefully the, the Reading fans get their wishes and... Mbengue, uh signs a new contract uh, George just quickly we'll touch briefly on two draws because I want to talk about Colo Torres first game as Wigan manager I was at the Den but first um, you, you kind of mentioned Cardiff and, and things that look different there they went to Stoke and drew 2-2 uh, things looking quite different in the sense that not many of Cardiff's games this season have been high scoring so uh, what did you make of that game it's weird doing
1: draws um yeah, I mean, as I said, Cardiff, aside who under Hudson are, are doing more now in terms of of trying to take the game to the opposition. Uh, they went ahead fairly early on in this one with a really nice finish from Ryan Wintle. Um, and, you know, interesting to see players like Wintle and Gavin White who set up the goal getting more of an opportunity under Hudson as well. Um, Harry Souter, another World Cup hero playing centre-back for, uh, for Stoke, who had seemingly had more of a hard time keeping out... Um, the, the card of attackers then he had some of the, the best players in the world when he was out in Qatar. Uh and then important goal scorers, you know, for you could see how much it meant to Tyrese Campbell, um, who's who's struggled for goals since returning from that, that serious injury. He doesn't quite look the same player as previously. Uh it did look like Liam Delap probably should have had a penalty um in the game, which would have been pretty decisive in it. Um, but Callum Robinson with the the all important equaliser for, for probably what say a, a fair Draw but doesn't do too much for Alex Neil, kind of still waiting for, for Neil's impact. You know, a, a manager that we have a lot of time and respect for. The longer it goes with, without Neil being able to turn things around at Stoke, the more it just feels like a, a poison chalice there with so many decent managers coming into the, the job and, and, and struggling to really make them anything more than mid table fodder. Hmm.
0: Okay, well, Millwall won, Wigan won. Uh, I love going to the Den. It's such a great stadium. I really believe. In championship terms, it's up there with with my favourites. Uh, of course, Millwall fans, you know their anthem. Let them come, let them come to the den. You know they're very inviting by nature, so it was nice to um, to be able to join them as they've as they request. Um, and it was it was mainly of interest for me because it was Colo Torres' first game uh, as Wigan manager. And I wanted to, to see in the flesh what Colo had been working on. Uh, the, the fans did chant the Kolo and Yaya Toure chant after a few minutes, but we only had it once or twice. So I think Wigan fans probably still in the balance whether they think, yeah, let's let's fully go for this or whether they think, you know what? Maybe let's leave it. Maybe let's try and create new chants for our manager and, and not reference his talented older younger brother uh, five times a game. So uh, that's an interesting one to watch. As is the way that they played, um, they set up in a four-four-two, definitely with the intention to build from the back uh, whenever possible. The good news for for Wigan is that they have Will Keane playing in that kind of slightly withdrawn striker role, and he's tall. He's a good outball as well, so you can go long. Uh, and and they've got Lang in particular on the right side of the attack who who can stretch defenses as well. But they were definitely trying to build. Uh, their goal was was the first. Example of it really working, and that was you know more than halfway through the first half. So they were a bit sticky to start with, I'd say. But then Tilt fizzed it into Keane through the lines, and then Keane first time out wide to Dericheux, and 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 then they got a little bit lucky with a ricochet, and Keane scored the goal. So it wasn't it wasn't always glorious build up from the back, but it was quite Parsy. They sometimes got a bit stuck, and I think long term, I have got concerns about the personnel that they have and their ability to do that well enough. You know, we spoke about Blackburn Rovers earlier on. We know the, the risks of this approach, um, but it worked at times here. Tilt was the one that Millwall were kind of baiting into into passes by by not pressing him. Um, and he did pretty well for the most part, Tilt. So I think he was impressive. Uh, and I love Keane. I just think Will Keane's a brilliant, brilliant player, um, both in terms of a, of a goal scorer. You can't argue with his record since the start of last season, but such an intelligent player as well. You know, he's He is a very good example of a, someone who's a big man, but who has a, a magnificent touch. And I think he... I think he's got the brain of a number 10. I think he'd like to be a small, agile number 10. He's not that, um, but he's making it work. I think he's, he's a quality player. Um, we also saw Millwall's quality player, Fleming, score a, a brilliant volley. And uh, yeah, he was exactly what I expected in the flesh. He he didn't get on the ball that much, to be honest. But every time he did, he wanted to shoot, no matter where he was on the pitch. Um, Cutting in and taking shots with his weaker foot from 30 yards, not a problem for for big Zian Fleming. And and everyone loves him so much that he has license to do so as well. So it all works quite well at at this point in time. And I liked Billy Mitchell as well in in midfield for Millwall. But a a one-all draw, the game really petered out, to be honest, in the last... 35 minutes, there was no real impact from the subs. Uh, a positive start for Colo Torre, a good point on the road. Blackpool nil. Birmingham nil was a match that happened on the coast of the Irish Sea. Uh, before we get into League One, George, news yesterday morning, which is very relevant to our interests, broken by Rob Draper in the Daily Mail. Uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said to have signed off the independent football regulator... The government will present its white paper or proposed legislation in the new year. Something you spoke about with Matt Slater a couple of weeks ago, and you seemed a bit a bit down about
1: uh, the mm. positive news. I can only assume Rishi listened to the pod and thought, you know what, I've got to sort that out, haven't I? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I think it's important not to get overly excited before we we kind of see the fruits of this labour. Um, it does feel like the you know any lobbying from Premier League executives at this stage hasn't been successful um but you do worry that some kind of compromise will be will be brought forward but if we do get an independent regulator that is um not a government um you know a, a government employee who has no relationship to the premier league has no bias then then this has to be a very positive thing going forward so i think it's probably still watch this space but it's great to know that the the work of the fan Ed review hasn't been swept under the carpet and we can hopefully begin to see an end to um, the Premier League's kind of vice-like grip on uh, English football, you know, and it's important to remember that when it went to a vote between Premier League clubs in terms of the, the relationship with the FL, it was a 14-6 in favour and you don't mean, need me to tell you which six voted against um, and it's about time that, the, the you know, the lion's share of the power was taken away from those clubs in my view.
0: Yeah, plenty of, of water to run under the bridge, to coin a phrase that doesn't exist. Pl- plenty to come. Uh, we'll, we'll understand the details in due course, but it, it feels like a, a not insignificant win, if you like, for, let's say, the EFL and their clubs. And a, a defeat, a rare defeat for those at the very, very top of the game. Um, we'll wait and see what happens here. Uh, and... We will keep you updated. Uh, let's move to League One, uh, where we had just over half of a programme. Uh, and I'm going to go good cop Forest Green Rovers, who were 1-0 winners against Cheltenham. Uh, and good for it. And this is significant result, you have to say, for a team who two weeks ago were, I thought, in really poor shape. And I, if I'm honest, was very much fearing for them, not seeing enough from their performances to see where they were going to pick wins pick up wins from or pick up more points than the teams that they're battling with uh all of a sudden win against Cambridge last weekend win against Cheltenham uh they've absolutely flown off the bottom they're in 21st now so still in the zone but they've got four points more than Burton and five more than Morecambe and MK so plenty of life in the in the vegan dog um Pert Harris the match winner here on loan from Brentford a former Chelsea youth star this is a a very silky attacking midfield player. I saw him live. Uh, I think it was his first appearance against Brighton in the Cup. He's the sort of player that is both very attractive because of what you think he might be, but also needs to show that he can impact games, if you know what I mean. That That's the same for most young players. But I guess what I mean is he's got, to my eyes, a bit of a Loftus-Cheek kind of vibe. He's tall. He can carry it really smoothly. He looks like he... he you know, he's just a, a savvy operator, a smart passer. But, you know, when push comes to shove, George, in senior football, when, you know, everyone's got mortgages and needs their win bonuses, you you know, these need, these guys need to show that they can do it at this level. So for him to score a winning goal, a header from a set piece as well, um, really, really important. And hopefully he can grow in confidence and, and show quality in this number 10 role. He's got McGeoch and Stevenson behind him. Mentioned McGeoch last week as having signed a few weeks ago. Who, who could, in theory, be a really nice addition for them. So these are the sorts of partnerships you want to see grow. If Forest Green are going to keep picking up points, you feel like they need a few things to happen. You need that midfield three, basically, to, to keep performing and make sure that they're not losing games in, in terms of the midfield battle. They definitely need Wickham and March and Matt all to stay fit. I think they need all three because Wickham as we know, very injury-prone. Matt and March have both picked, had injuries as well. Stevens is still out. They, they need a focal point because otherwise they look very, very shoddy going forward. Um, but all good the last two weeks. Not time to get carried away, I don't think. But um, uh, two wins against teams in the bottom six. These are gigantic wins. So well done, Forest Green. Good cop. Have you got a bad one? MK Dons, mate. It's time. Mm. It is time okay. to talk
1: about... MK Dons, who have sacked Liam Manning after a 2-1 defeat against Fleetwoods. Um, You know, th- their season has quite clearly been they're probably the most disappointing campaign of any team so far in the, in the EFL in terms of pre-season optimism, last season, ex- last season performance and where they sit now. And a 2-1 defeat at home to a side who are kind of uh, with them in the relegation battle um, was the final straw. And, you know, feel a little bit sorry in terms of this isolated game where this wasn't a bad performance from MK Dons it was maybe one of their better performances of the season they, they created the better chances they probably felt like they should have been ahead when um, the injury time goal or the, the late goal at least was scored by Fleetwood um, by Batty uh, a, a bit of a screamer as well to, to get Fleetwood all three points um, I watched the interview with Liam Sweeting uh, the sporting director at, at MK Dons last night after the decision to sack Manning And he alluded to the fact that, in his opinion, the performances have got better. I would agree with that. I think they've had a few games recently where they've been way, way better than what we'd seen before, the Derby one being an example as well, where they've lost games where they haven't necessarily deserved to lose them. Um, The negativity around MK Dons at the moment is massive. Uh, Again, it's another case, I guess, of maybe paying the price for success. But you know, looking at the comments um, under... Liam's interview. Um, the you know the fans were fairly happy that Manning's been shown the door, but but they uh, are not particularly happy or supportive of of uh, Liam Sweeting. Which, when you consider the business they've done over the last couple of seasons, is is a bit of a surprise. But it just goes to show how fickle football fans can be, um, and how results driven uh, football fans are rather than process driven. Um, but then I guess they will say, well, hold on, look at the amount of money we we, we brought in to be transferred sales in the summer. Why hasn't that been spent? Um, and I can't answer that question. Um, Sweeting has said in that that the you know the the search for a new manager um starts now. Interestingly, he alluded to the, the fact that they have to get someone in who can come in and improve things immediately, which I think might see, might mean we might see a, a bit of a change of tact from them in terms of who they go after. I still think it'll be a coach who wants to play a certain way, but it might be someone with a bit of experience. MK Don's fans wanting Liam Richardson, I can't really see that. I don't really see how the football that he plays goes with the squad that they've built. But Darren Ferguson is one who you could possibly see. In terms of you know you look at his Peter sides and the way that they played and the way they like to dominate and, and get forward and get the ball down and, and, and score goals, if they could attract him, that might be bridging the gap between a, a certain style, a certain profile, not an academy coach or a bright young thing, but somebody's done it at the level before, but still kind of aligns to the to the um, the culture that you're going after. Carl Robinson is another name that's come up. Um, a lot of Oxford fans. Uh, asking whether or not he'd be he'd be linked to it would it would seem to be pretty at odds with the the hierarchy um at MK Dons at the moment I think for them to go after a manager who's enjoyed um power beyond what he would get at MK Dons uh if he were to go there so it'll be interesting to see what happens um in a similar way it does feel like a a fairly good job for a manager to take that the building blocks are there Despite what MK Dons fans think, their their transfer record is is pretty exemplary. It's just been a really bad few months, um, but the signs are there that things are improving. Um, but yeah, it was a, a a pretty catastrophic result, if not a bad performance on Saturday, and one that sees them buck you know buckling up for for what looks like it could be relegation season, and if they don't get this appointment right. Such inconsistency of selection,
0: particularly in attacking areas, has, has been to my eyes a bit confusing i think injuries have played a part in this but we often talk about how difficult it must be for managers particularly inexperienced ones to handle um a, a bad start to the season or a really bad run in terms of how do you react how much do you react how much do you change what do you change to try and and, and make an impact and make changes or do you pure stick to the process we know what we're doing i'm i'm not really sure he did as much sticking to the process as He could have, but didn't do good enough changes to to have an impact. You know, they've been the worst. Do good changes. Do good changes, mate. That's just football management, isn't it? Mm. 101. Uh, They've been the worst attacking team in the league by some distance. And you can't tell me that's just because Scott Twine doesn't play for them. Um, They've played with no confidence early on. and, And Manning couldn't inject that either by better tactics and team selection or... The other side of the coin, man management, motivating, etc. That I did get the sense, and you kind of mentioned it there, I got the sense from Liam Tweeting's interview that that man management, that motivational, that that character or personality, if you like, aspects to the appointment I think will be maybe more important than perhaps it would have been previously because they do need a jolt. They need a kick up the arse. Um, as for Manning, it'd be very interesting to see what his next job will be. I don't think he would struggle to get another job certainly in youth football or at under-23s at a big club. I wouldn't be surprised at all because of the the, the way that he's worked before this job and even in the development and working with so many young players at MK Dons. In terms of as a senior manager, I'm interested to know what you think. I I, I sort of feel like he's probably going to need the dust to settle a bit and not all young managers have time to wait for the dust to settle. You know, the extent of this team's poor performance for 20 games, their poor mentality... Their their confidence being so shot, it doesn't reflect very well on him. Sadly,
1: no. I mean, it's it's important to remember that he came to um, MK Dons as a very highly thought of young coach after his work you know, with the City Group and Lummel. Um, last season's exploits were extraordinarily good, and there's no getting away from that. You know, even though he came in at at a, at a late date. In the summer, um, to maintain that, that performance level over the course of the season, marrying that with a certain style was one of the best, you know, rookie seasons of EFR management I think we've probably ever seen. He doesn't become a bad manager overnight. Um, I was having a conversation with someone about this last night where I, you know, I said, I'm pretty sure he's not done. And my guess is, and this won't go down particularly well with MK Dons fans, and apologies for that, I'd be much more confident of of Liam Manning being a, a championship manager sooner than MK Dons being a championship club at this current moment purely because of his profile having said that MK Dons in my mind is is an incredibly well-run club and it should give bright young coaches the platform with which to succeed we saw that with Russell Martin we saw that with Liam Manning last season so whose fault is this basically was the recruitment really bad maybe maybe it was maybe 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 the, the players aren't good enough or maybe the maybe the group is too young possibly that's the case or are they being coached poorly i don't think that judging from his interview yesterday my hunch is that liam sweetings probably still thinks that liam manning might even be the best person or might be the right person for the job but there is an understanding that something has to change in order to to stop what is you know inevitably turning into relegation season so Yeah, I think he's still a manager with a bright future, even though I know MK MK Don's fans probably disagree with basically everything I've said, both about them being a well-run club and about his future. Great. Well, you've always been,
0: you know, you've always gone after the fan sentiment first and foremost. Well, no, I
1: mean, I also always say that you should never, you know, you shouldn't tell a club's fans how they should feel about their club, but there is always going to be a difference between a neutral looking in and appraising a club in the context of the other clubs at their level, compared to a fan who's emotional, who goes to the games and who lives every single result, you know that that they're two different viewpoints that you're going to be coming from. And as a neutral, I think MK Dons have it pretty well and have done over the last couple of seasons. Um, and this has been a poor couple of months, but that doesn't change a lot of good work that's gone on. I am not the person paying for my ticket, sitting in the stands in a freezing cold, fairly empty stadium every week. So. You know, th- th- you're going to have a different viewpoint. Neither neither are more or less valid than the other. Even though I'm sure some MK fans will think that mine is is invalid. Fleetwood
0: barely had a shot in this game. It it was a classic end of a manager's tenure defeat. Um, one nil up early. Uh, Fleetwood not showing huge signs of getting back into it and then one quite nice move deflected shot from the edge of the box goes in the corner and then an absolute worldie at the end to win it the the, the sort of goal that only feels like it goes in when your club is in the situation that, that MK Dons are in uh, and they've grabbed all three points and we should say Fleetwood's points return particularly away from home is is pretty impressive this season and they're doing very well to, to keep any relegation battle um, fairly distanced from them at this stage interestingly there Their underlying numbers suggest that they are running pretty hot defensively. Now, I have not spent enough time looking deeply into this to be able to demonstrate a lot of reasons why I think that might be. But I will say that their goalkeeper, Jay Lynch, is towards the very top of League One's underlying shot-stopping metrics. And I think for a team that is bottom six for total XG against, but has conceded 10 goals or more fewer than those in the bottom six. That is going to be having quite a big impact. So um, it, it, it makes, yeah, I think it's really interesting, partly because Jay Lynch was the Rochdale goalkeeper last season in what was a poor League Two team that had a poor campaign. And his underlying data from the sites that I can find wasn't that good. So I'm not quite sure who at Fleetwood scouted Jay Lynch and went, he's going to be our keeper for League One. But well done them, because he's <laughs> possibly their player of the season so far. Uh, George, it's Ipswich... It's
1: because football's played on grass, mate. That's why. Right. right.
0: That'll be it. Yeah. Um, grassy J. Lynch. Uh, mm. Ipswich 2, Peterborough 1. Ipswich were the only team in the top half of League 1 to win uh, on the weekend, whereas Peterborough, after this defeat, have now lost more games than Morecambe, who are 24th
1: and they're 6th. Wow. A bit weird. Yeah. Very weird. Very, yeah, this was quite a weird, I mean, I would say the result here is kind of what you would imagine, you know, both teams scoring, Ipswich making their their superiority count and getting the three points. I wouldn't necessarily say the game went the way that you would have thought it would have done, though. Um, Ipswich have, have shown themselves to be a team who are, are eminently capable of creating plenty of chances against basically any League One side. It's, it's taking those chances that's it's sometimes been their undoing or at least holding on to the lead itself that has that has been, especially in recent weeks. They didn't create loads here. Um, Connor Chaplin had their two best chances. Both of them really decent finishes rather than kind of guilt chances, chances uh, with, with Peter getting an equaliser in between the two and, and hitting the woodwork from a distance from a free kick. Um, it wasn't a great game. You know, I'd say that these are two sides who are two of the best sides to watch in the division, um, either because of style of play or because their goals generally, you know, their game's, Generally, see loads of goalmouth action. There wasn't loads of goalmouth action at all in this one. Um, it was a-, a game that where three goals were scored without much being really done in the final third by either side. So, um, I guess you know this was a-, a massive weekend for Ipswich. Let's make that clear. They had a, a really good opportunity last weekend with Sheffield Wednesday and-, and Plymouth Argyle dropping points to to exert themselves at the top end of, of League One and didn't take it due to a-, a very late equaliser in a game that they dominated. The same happened here you know, Cambridge um, drawing with with Plymouth Argyle, Wednesday going to Exeter and getting a draw. And this time they were able to do that. And with both Wednesday and and Argyle struggling in their last couple of games, it does feel a little bit ominous here that if Ipswich can maintain the performance level, they've they've probably got to be better than they were on Saturday. But if they can maintain their season-long performance level and continue the way they're going, then I think they could be out of sight pretty quick. Chaplin reading posh their last rights. Uh, Bristol Rovers 1,
0: Port Vale nil was a game I was really... Interested in pre-match, partly because it was Daryl Clark back at gas where he enjoyed two promotions uh, and partly because I just think these two teams are maybe in the best shape of any of the teams outside of League One's big dogs. Not necessarily reflected right now in the league table. I know that uh, Shrewsbury fans would be right to point out that they are in 10th place. Uh, Bristol Rovers are 12th and Port Vale are 11th. Um, But just the way I perceive these teams to be playing, I think Vale and Rovers are the teams I'm most impressed with at this moment in time. Uh, And Bristol Rovers won it 1-0. It was a relatively tight game that was decided by a moment of quality from possibly the league's best player this season in Aaron Collins who is having an insane season an insane season not not just as a goal scorer where he is you know even on goal output alone he'd be probably in the team of the season i guess up front with Clark Harris i haven't got the top goal scorer charts to hand but i guess he's in the top 2 with Clark Harris but as a creator as well if you add his xg and his xa his expected assists and his expected goals together Collins is so far clear of anyone else in league 1 that it's basically like having an extra player in attack. You're, you're looking at a league where the goal scorers rarely create and the creators don't score that many. But Collins is doing both and it's just unbelievable. It's his first time he's ever played at this level as well. It's not like he's completely come out of nowhere. He has just taken an an unbelievable leap um, under under Joey Barton in the last 12 months or so. So there you go. Big win for, for Rovers. Uh, more confidence for them. They're, they're just, they're rising. You know, only Ipswich have picked up more points than Bristol Rovers in their last ten games, so they're in fantastic nick right now. At Shrewsbury three, Bolton two. George mentioned last week that no Shrewsbury striker had scored in weeks, months, even, and then Street and Sadie said, oh, "Okay, yeah, we'll now we'll score now."
1: Street and Sadie sounds like a. Um, I don't know what it sounds like. I was going to say like a law firm, but I think it's more maybe like, a, like clothing. A I think it's I think it's a clothing pop up food, isn't it?
0: Yeah, with a clothing line on the side. Wow! Due so to th- their due to their Instagram success, good Street
1: pieces. is the food because they're on the street, and then Sadie is the fashion line, just runs nice. inside it. Really good. Yeah, they beat Bolton uh, late. They did Bolton being served up a dose of their own medicine um, when uh, Bolton fans who've enjoyed some incredible uh, late drama this season saw Shay Dunkley. Um, with a kind of weird uncontested header about a yard out um, from a, a kind of looping ball uh, after a set piece, not at home they must have, have you know felt the or seen scenes they've been used to experiencing themselves. Um, they they would have thought they were were pretty clear to end up with a, a Dion Charles brace, who's finally scoring um, the goals we probably expected that he would do uh, this season. Um, and yeah, all credit to Shrewsbury, who, who managed to come back from, from that position. That D- They're not a team that we necessarily associate with scoring lots of goals. Bolton aren't the side who we associate with giving up many chances. So for them to come back from 2-1 down, get those two unimportant goals. Um, a big goal for Dunkley, who you know, can, normally is a, a massive threat in the opposition box. Um, yeah, I said last week how important a result it was for Shrewsbury after a, a difficult run themselves. But here they've gone up against a side who are genuine playoff contenders and, and came away with all three points.
0: Continued to be pretty impressed by the way that Shrews operate under Steve and uh, the way that they've approached things over the last two seasons or so. I think it's absolutely the right way for them to have uh, approached their their place in League One, and uh, it's paying off at the moment with with some well, with relatively consistent good results, apart from a, a blip in, in October and November, uh, and uh, you know, uh, currently sitting very pretty in tenth. Uh, we had a few draws: extra one Sheffield Wednesday, one uh, Wednesday with a late equaliser, beautiful finish from from Patterson I think one of those shots that many would have blasted into the stands uh, in stoppage time but not Callum Patterson who curled it in uh, to equalize after Jake Caprice had scored with another long shot through Stockdale's hands uh, Burton won Derby won this would have been sweet for for Burton fans with Derby you know being their big brother in the eyes of some I wouldn't say that but haven't in the beaten them at some, the Pirelli
1: have they Derby. haven't
0: beat them at the Pirelli that record continues oh Ataboyejo, so hot right now with the equalising goal, it means that Derby have drawn four in their last five. So, um, my my spidey senses are tingling. Are these are these draws going to turn into wins or defeats? Let's wait and see. And Cambridge nil, Plymouth nil, Lincoln nil, Wickham nil were football matches. Uh, lastly, Georgian League One. Let's talk about some news that broke two hours after we recorded the pod last week. Uh, ben Garner being sacked by Charlton. They're currently eighteenth in League One with twenty four points from twenty games. Um, they've only lost six of those 20, which is the same as fourth-placed Barnsley, but they've really struggled with turning draws into wins and, and only three teams have won fewer than their five games. What are your thoughts, George, Ben Garner leaving Charlton Athletic?
1: Yeah, I don't really know my thoughts about Charlton generally this season, um, where how much blame goes to Ben Garner, how much blame goes to Thomas Sangard, um and the other uh, kind of executive um, staff at a board level? I, I don't really know the answer. Um, I know that Sangard isn't very popular with Charlton fans. I know that, Garn- that Garner wasn't particularly popular with Charlton fans either. Um, as a club, they don't seem to be particularly built for success. What I would say is Charlton's squad and the quality they've got at their disposal is, is far better than 18th um, in League One. There's no denying that. Uh, it does feel like there is a change coming um, at some point in terms of the ownership at, at Charlton. And it feels to me like Garner would be quite a good option to to, to have, uh, you know, if you are going to be well-run, and you are going to have a an owner who supports you, like Clem Morfuni did last season at, at Swindon. Um, then, then Garner's proven himself to be a manager who can get the best out of technically gifted players and play a certain way of playing football. So, you know, Sangard has said that he felt he had no choice but to pull the trigger. Um, that's fair, but, you know... I don't think that Garner is the issue at Charlton. I think often you can point to a manager being the problem and and with Garner, I think maybe he wasn't doing his job very well, but but it's just one part of of what's been an incredibly disappointing campaign so far.
0: Yeah, I think I can uh, echo that with interest. Uh, I really don't like what I've seen at Charlton in the last two years. Um, And I believe there is a pretty big difference between what... We've heard from the ownership versus what they've actually done uh, a case of talking talk and in my opinion not walking walk. I don't believe that the investment into the club both in terms of the on-pitch stuff and the squad building and budgets or the off-pitch stuff in terms of infrastructure is as lofty as people may have believed based on early statements. I don't think that the culture of the club has been improved and bear in mind the culture at that club has been at a very low ebb for some time because of previous poor owners it shouldn't ha- it shouldn't be difficult initially to breathe new life into Charlton with good leadership but i don't think that has been evident at all i don't think that the staff at the club on or off the pitch feel that they get a level of support that's necessary for high performance um I don't think the squad is as good as you think it is by the sound of things, not because they don't have some good players just because of its absolute imbalance in, in some areas it lacks quality and in some areas it lacks depth. And in some areas it lacks both. And in some areas it's kind of stacked. Um, If you were managing this team on football manager, which is a scenario that I like to put myself in often, I have no idea what style or formation you would play to get the best out of the players that they have. Like, a fairly technical group of midfielders may lend itself to possession football. That's probably what they were thinking hiring Ghana. But the speedy wingers are best in transition. The striker and captain Stockley is, is best as a target man with someone playing off him. The centre-backs aren't good on the ball for the level and the full-backs aren't particularly exciting or good going forward either. So they've ended up playing this kind of confused and inconsistent style Injuries at really annoying times haven't helped, particularly to Leeburn, just as he was developing a partnership with Stockley in that four-four-two, And Egbo, the right back, who I thought was giving them what they need in terms of attacking from, from fullback positions. But I basically just don't think there's a club in the country that could have three or four managers, different managers, in three or four consecutive seasons and have a good, well-put-together squad. There's not enough continuity there. Uh, And in this competitive League One, you can't just cycle through managers hoping to find the golden egg. You can forget it. So, uh, yeah, I I don't particularly blame Ben Garner, nor do I think he was outperforming or performing particularly uh, specially. Uh, And I think he deserves another shot and I hope he gets one probably at a League Two club. Um, So it'll be interesting to see where they go next. I, I I'm sure it was reported in the summer they were quite hot on Mick Beale, funnily enough, before he got the QPR job, but couldn't persuade him to join. So I'm thinking maybe an Anthony Barry on it's about the shortlist. It's
1: about time Mick left Rangers, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Excellent. Uh, League two, six games and two were nil-nil. I want you to tell me what you think was the most interesting game in League two this weekend. If you want to make it a bad cop, you can. But it's such a random weekend in League two that I'm just going to let you uh, take free reign before I tell you about my trip to Sussex.
1: Grimsby-Tranmere, I mean, there's not much to say. Uh, Grimsby won the game 2-1. Um, McAtee played a pretty starring role in terms of creative um, play, which is important because it's been quite strange that his return to the side has coincided with a, a bit of a slump of form. I put Tranmere up on the betting show, hold my hands up. That was just wrong. Um, they were the worst side of the game. And um, their form at this stage is is so, yeah, I mean, it's it's so poor. And it's, it's kind of odd when you look at it in the... in in reflection of of where they were with that good run. And and I wouldn't say there there was not much in the numbers to suggest that wasn't sustainable and there's not much in the numbers to suggest what's going on at the moment. But um, yeah, they were poor on the day and uh, Grimsby. you know, between these two sides, both of whom adopted fairly lofty positions quite recently, um, both of them are now kind of meandering towards having a a pretty nothing season. But for Grimsby, of course, you know, this is a, I should say, this is a, a three points that, you know, wards off any fears of that of that chapter. can you imagine how cold the wind was
0: at blundell y- park yes <laughs> yes you can having experienced it many times yeah so good cop hartlepool or more specifically the 128 hartlepool fans that traveled down for their game against crawley in ridiculous temperatures on a friday having seen their team pick up only two points from 10 away games so far. Those 128 Hartlepool fans are awesome. Legends. Um, mm. And I wasn't among them. I'm a bit sad in hindsight. I did look to see if I could buy a ticket in the away end, but I think I had to collect it from Hartlepool. And even even for a man who was willing to drive to, to Crawley on a Friday night to watch a game, that would have been a stretch. Um, I was in the Crawley end and... I was not very impressed with Crawley Town. I was slightly more impressed by Hartlepool United. Uh, it was a bit of a nothing game, to be honest. Uh, there was a double injury for Crawley after 15 minutes, which didn't help. Joel Lynch, Ashley Nadison. Warm up properly, lads. Just on a day like that, just, mm. just stretch those hammies is that, out. Is that lads. even possible? Stretch them out. They didn't warm up well enough, and they got injured after 15 minutes. Um, and, and Hartlepool, frankly... Played with, with little ambition other than to keep it nil- nil as long as possible, I think, and basically gave the ball to Crawley, sat in a very uh, structured and uh, stodgy 352, and dared Crawley to be good enough to cut through them and create chances and they weren't they weren't even close to being good enough. They mainly just recycled it from side to side. they didn't threaten from crosses, which would have been an obvious Someone just way. threw to- a
1: snowball at my window outside. Gen- genuinely someone just threw a snowball on, off from the street against our window that is go and mash them up then have a word this could be I mean for our first ever videoed podcast this could be incredible content <laughs> uh, okay carry on as you were I think they've run that was so weird I thought it was a bird and then I can I can see the I mean it, yeah I don't know mad
0: alright a hit, a hit and run a podcast yeah. first um i was just telling you how how poor crawley were basically um didn't threaten from crosses didn't threaten from range didn't get into dangerous situations inside the box and hartley paul maybe did that was in. the
1: crypto gods like punishing you like in fleabag when the picture of god collapses to the floor when the sexy priest in fleabag kiss that was wag me lord wag me throwing a snowball at my, my window
0: well, we need to talk about Wagme after I've told you about Hartlepool's Sorry, win. On. They, yeah. they only had one shot in the first half Hartleypool. So, you know, when I say they weren't ambitious, I do mean it. It was Sterry from range. And I would say the good things for Hartlepool generally came from Callum Cook and or Jamie Sterry. At one point, both of them, when Cook picked out Sterry with a brilliant crossfield ball. Cook's got the sort of vision and passing ability that they lack in other areas of the pitch, but he didn't get on the ball that much. But they would have just grown in confidence the more it, it stayed 0-0, the more frustrated Crawley got. And in quite classic fashion, they got a set-piece goal, uh, rolling in the deep, Menaise heading in a cook corner. And then another cook corner listed an own goal and a 2-0 win for, for Hartlepool. It, it doesn't matter how they won. It's important that they did win. It's their first away win of the season. Now, I don't think there will be many teams that Hartlepool will beat playing like that, uh, but crawley absolutely were it was the right game plan they were right to be ripe rather to be smashed and grabbed uh, crawley were were all fart and no poo as they say <sighs> an undercurrent of unrest at crawley i think it's fair to say george and it it, it sort of starts with tom nichols star attacker randomly left out of the squad Two matches ago and not in the squad here as well. Uh, Matty Etherington saying it's out of my hands. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, Then a quote I've seen from the director of football saying that, yes, basically there's transfer speculation about Tom Nichols, And while that's uh, happening, they feel it's best for him not to be in the squad. Fans understandably not thrilled. Um, There's a website called The Real EFL, which posted a story on the weekend. And I must stress that these are unconfirmed reports at this time. Posted a story that that Nichols has a proposed move to Colchester United for a fee of sixty k, uh, which is is ongoing. Which is both the destination and the fee quite surprising there, um, and and basically that's what's happening with Tom Nichols. Sutton beat Colchester one nil. Um, this is my nap on the betting show, so I I want to get away with saying never in doubt. But, but I'm not sure that would necessarily be fair. I think I think Colchester who have lost all but one of their away games in League Two this season, did pretty well at 0-0, pretty well for the first 30 minutes. And then such is kind of the rhythm of their season. Uh, a penalty in first half injury time scored by Milsom. In the incident in which the penalty was given, Alan Judge has picked up a horrible knee injury in, in a in a way that's quite confusing and a bit innocuous and also Really, really sad for him, um, particularly at the age that he is and having had horrible injuries in the past. And then a red card quite early in the second half for, for Ashley. And, and after that, I think pretty straightforward for Sutton, a, a half chance at the end from from Dallison. But 10 defeats from 11 away from home for Colu and, and Sutton improving their home record, which was so strong last season. Uh, lastly, George Newport one, Doncaster 2. Doncaster baffle me, absolutely baffle me. They're, they're the only both, team in the both
1: of these two. I can't get a handle on at all.
0: <laughs> well, Donny, Donny are the only team in the top fifteen with a negative goal difference. They sacked their manager already this season. A new one's come in and won three, lost three, drawn one, and lost to Kings Lynn at home in the cup. So generally, I'd f- I feel like the the vibe is quite negative, and yet there they are in tenth, two points from the playoffs, and seemingly pretty deserving of this win against Newport.
1: Yeah, they were. I mean, Newport were really poor and and Graham Coughlin said it himself after the game. Um, And it was a big win for Donny after a promising start under Danny Schofield. As you say, the the cup defeat and a couple of poor performances in the league. mean that of these two managers, there's no denying that that Coughlin's made the better start, I would say. Um, But that was turned on its head. Um, Newport looking pretty devoid of ideas. Doncaster making their chances count and and the better team on the day. Um, It it feels like a stretch to me to think that either of these sides are going to trouble the top seven. But as you say, despite showing long spells of poor form already this season, (laughs) Doncaster aren't aren't far away from it at at this stage. So um, yeah, probably a big January for both clubs given they've got new management.
0: Kyle Noyle putting on a a Cafu costume. um, for I always want
1: to say his name in a Northern Irish accent.
0: Go on. No, I want you to do it. Kyle Noyle?
1: Yeah, there you go. (laughs)
0: Nadine Coyle. They've got three of their next four at home, Donny. I just want to see them start to play with consistency, basically. I want to see them play the good attacking football that their board clearly want them to play. It was referenced in in the sacking of McSheffrey. They've got technical players for the level in close and Clayton and Molyneux who was missing here I, I just want to see a more consistent level of performance so three of the next four at home some of them look pretty winnable on paper let's check in with Donny in a couple of weeks and see where this bizarre team are at that point Stevenage nil Mansfield nil and Swindon nil Wimbledon nil both of them matches that happened over the weekend um basically in both games each team had one decent chance not a lot else and goalkeepers are on top so there you go um a first for us, this pod is, is a video pod as well. Uh, that means you should be able to see some interesting things on your Instagrams and, shock horror, your TikToks. Uh, Ooh, if you what's s- that? If you search NTT20pod on TikTok, NTT20pod on Instagram, who knows what you will find? I genuinely do not know what you will find, but you'll find something. Uh, George has been begging me to... to approach tiktok stardom for some time now so well you've
1: we you're obsessed with being a, a twitch celebrity whereas i see myself more as a tiktoker so there you go
0: oh my oh, well, god I sound old need to get on some twitch action mm. soon as well thanks very much for listening to this pod guys neil Twitchley, always very grateful for your ears um and your eyes on Instagram and TikTok. Get on that. Thank you to Betfair for their sponsorship of this podcast on the Monday pod and on the betting show as well. We'll be back on Thursday with a betting show and we'll talk to you then. Go out. Well.